Well, you'll have gathered from the reading that our topic tonight is adultery. And let me say, if you're a regular, you may be feeling some deja vu. Or maybe you think, oh no, I've clicked on the uh, link to the wrong live stream from a couple of weeks ago. We have actually had a lot of talks on adultery recently. Uh, It is a new passage, but the same issue. Um, We had Jesus speaking about marriage and divorce in Mark 10. We had Proverbs 5 speaking about adultery. And that was a repeat of Proverbs 2, warning against adultery. It's come up a lot. And perhaps some might be thinking, of all the topics we could be thinking about, why are we going on and on about this one? Don't Christians have something better to do with their lives than worrying about who's getting into bed with who? Should preachers not focus on a subject that's a bit more cheery, or at least less personal, than adultery? Or something more directly relevant to those of us who are single? Well, let me say loud and clear that we're not returning to this subject because it's a particular bee in our bonnet or because we've chosen to focus on it. No, in fact, our usual pattern of preaching here is to work through books of the Bible bit by bit, and that's designed to ensure that God sets the agenda, not us. We're not the ones hitting the repeat button. So then, why does the Bible generally, and, and Proverbs specifically, make such a big deal of adultery, marriage, sexual sin? Why does God focus on this topic so often? Is it because God's anti-sex, kind of really low view of sex, just stamp it out wherever you find it? No, absolutely not. God's not anti-sex. He created it. He doesn't have a low view of sex. It's actually quite the opposite. God has a very, very high view of marriage and sex, far higher than the culture around us at the moment. He takes it more seriously than often we do. But why is that? Before we dive into the passage, why is God making such a big deal of marriage in the Bible? I think there are two reasons. The first is that God designed marriage to be a picture of something bigger. In all of his creation, God designed the lifelong marriage between one man and one woman to be a picture of his relationship with his people, of Christ's relationship with the church. That marriage idea is one of covenant love, so promise-bound love, exclusive loving commitment and mutual service, a relationship that's tied together with promises and love through thick and thin. That's the picture of God's loving commitment to his people and the loyalty we should respond with. And that's why healthy, strong marriages are good for us, whether in a church family or society more widely. Having marriages that do model what sacrificial, committed love, covenant love actually looks like, it's good for all of us, whether we're single or married ourselves. A tiny echo, a tiny visual aid of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And of course, that's why God really cares when marriages are torn apart. Whether it's divorce or adultery or just a general cheapening of sex without ties. In the West, the so-called free love revolution of the 1960s, it, it claimed to champion love. But in reality, it was cheapening love by removing it from a covenant context. So free love becomes empty love. And actually, as we've seen from the Me Too movement, 
abusive love at points. That's the first reason God cares about marriage. And you see that all the way through the Bible, from Hosea to Ezekiel to Ephesians to Colossians to Revelation. It's all over the place. But in Proverbs, that's not the reason given. The main reason God warns us of adultery in Proverbs is much more practical, much more simple and down to earth. It's this, adultery destroys. Adultery destroys. What does it destroy? Well, both back then and still now, adultery destroys families. It damages marriages. It damages children. Adultery destroys communities because of that. It damages society. And as we'll see, it can destroy the person committing it. I realize those are really, really strong things to say. But that is what Proverbs 6 does say. Just have a look at verse 32 with me. And it would help massively if you've got a Bible open. There is an outline on the website if you want one. But the most helpful thing is a Bible open in front of you. Chapter 6, verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Some of us will have seen that reality from bitter experience, perhaps with some we love. It's not actually an exaggeration. But of course, that's not at all what we would hear from films and books and wider society around us. The movies and the box sets tend to glamorize affairs. They they make them attractive, alluring, understandable, even sometimes heroic, true love. In fact, in the last few weeks, I reckon I've listened to about six different music albums, um, and all but one of them glamorized or normalized sex outside marriage in some way. It's just the cultural air we breathe. And yet, ironically, most of those albums also had a track describing the immense, gut-wrenching pain experienced in breakups from sexual relationships. It's a striking thing, that. Alongside the song celebrating the freedom, it's great that you can sleep with whoever you want. No ties. Well, our most honest artists describe in the very next song the grief, the hole torn into someone's heart by being left for another. The sad thing is there's often no voice of wisdom saying how the two might be connected to one another. And so we need God's help. You'll see across our passage tonight, there are actually two mini lectures from the father to the son. One starts at 6 verse 20, that's our first point, and the second one is all of chapter 7, starts at 7 verse 1. So we've got these two big points. And actually, when you look closely, the striking thing is that the two lessons actually repeat each other. The second one does so in a lot more racy detail, as we're going to see, but actually they make the same big point. In a nutshell, don't go anywhere near adultery. The imagery is going to change from a fire, chapter 6, to a trap, chapter 7, but, but actually it's the same point. Don't go near. And there are the same steps, the same sub-points, sub if you like, three steps. A, here's how to avoid it. B, here's why it's really tempting. And C, here's where it ends up. 
So let's head into chapter 6. The big point is do not play with fire. Adultery destroys. I'm getting that image of fire from verse 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Do not play with fire. Adultery destroys. Actually, the, the, the lecture begins, as so often with Proverbs, with preventative advice, with how to protect yourself, the precautions to keep you safe. And again, it's God's wisdom that can keep this son safe. The picture is uh, a father and a mother passing on God's instructions, God's wisdom, just like Deuteronomy 6 encourages us to do. If you, if you remember a few weeks ago, the, the um, mini-tragedy of our failed family walk in lockdown um, me trying to encourage my daughter Grace to wear, wear trousers and to not take the diversion through the trip hazard um, route. It's that again, although with a much more serious issue. Then notice the commands here in verses 20 to 24 that they're not just to listen, they're to bind God's word on our heart. Verse 21, bind them on your heart always, tie them round your neck continually remind yourself of this wisdom. It's by doing that that you get the 24-7 protection of verse 22. When we bind them on our heart, then verse 22, when you walk, they'll lead you. When you lie down, they'll watch over you. When you awake, they'll talk with you. It's crucial that you, you can't skip verse 21 if you want the verse 22 benefits. Or to put it another way, really simply, if we just come in to hear God's word on a Sunday and it goes in one ear and straight out the other. Or if we treat preaching or church live streams like a kind of spectator sport, just, you know, like popcorn, a great experience instantly forgotten, well then God's wisdom will not guard us Monday to Friday, morning to night. We've actually got to bind it onto our hearts. That's not literally talking about tying things around our necks. Um, Actually, to be honest, physical reminders, I think, can be helpful, whether it's post-it notes by the computer monitor or a desktop background. Um, for us, it's the kitchen whiteboard. Um, just above the to-do list, there's a verse of the week we always have up. Um, this week's feature is rejoice in the Lord always to help us with the weariness of lockdown. So visual reminders can be helpful. But actually, the real heart of it is our hearts. When we come to God's word, whether Sundays or small groups, will we actually engage with it, think it over, pray it through, reflect on it afterwards, talk about it with one another, meditate day and night, as someone says. Perhaps memorize a particularly helpful verse. That's what produces the protection of verse 22. Striking, actually, Christians sometimes talk about preaching the truth to ourselves, which is a great, great thing to do. But the promise in verse 22 is stronger than that. Actually, if we take God's truth to heart, it will talk to us. Did you notice that? When you awake, they will talk with you, the commands, the wisdom of God. And many of us actually would testify that, to that as Christians that the Holy Spirit often brings to mind something we've already learned from God's word at just the moment we need it. So it's worth taking the time to bind God's truth to our hearts, whether it's prayer, reflection, committing it to memory, having a daily devotion, it's worth it. Worth it, verse 23, because as Scott said earlier, God's word does have the power to shine light 
on the complex paths of light. The commandment, verse 23, is a lamp, the teaching of light, and reproofs of discipline are the way of life. I've bought a few things since I came to Scotland. Uh, one of them is a head torch. Half the year, apparently, it's quite dark up here, um, even seemingly in the daytime. But it is very effective. So whether I'm walking up a hill or just taking the rubbish out down our steep steps, uh, th that kind of single light holds the power that I never need to break my ankle if I put it on, if I bind it to my head, if I actually remember to wear it. For a few weeks, I'd lost it somewhere in the house, and I've never been in more danger taking out the rubbish. The danger here, verse 24, is to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now, just before we carry on, I do want to explain, especially if you're tuning into Proverbs for the first time tonight, that this verse, and actually all of chapter 7, it isn't being sexist. It's not particularly singling out women as the sexual predators, the kind of evil ones, as if men weren't guilty of that too. The Bible's very clear that we are. No, as we said before, these characters are this way round because of the setting of Proverbs, a father instructing his son. And because the ultimate choice he's going to have to make is between lady wisdom or lady folly. We'll see more of that next time. But actually, look around the rest of the Bible, and it's very clear. Sexual temptation, seduction, predatory behavior, it comes from men and women to men and women. And the New Testament applies the book of Proverbs to all Christians, whether you're a man or a woman, and all ages, actually. You don't have to be a young man or an unmarried or married person for these principles still to apply. But also, let me say, if you are a teenager, if you are a teenage bloke, if you're a young adult, I think there is a particular warning to take seriously here. Because adultery is genuinely tempting and genuinely dangerous. I think hearing that can be a bit of a shock. I remember two times in my life, actually, I was really surprised when an older Christian told me that adultery would be a real temptation. First time, I was a single man, and I heard a Bible teacher saying in passing that when you get married, temptation doesn't go away. That one day you might come across someone who you get on really well with, and you think to yourself, I could have married you. In my young naivety, I was a bit surprised by that. The second time was marriage prep. An older married Christian man explained to me that getting married doesn't magically stop all temptation to cover other people. I was shocked. But it's true. Temptation does come to married men and women, especially if, as we discussed in Mark 10, the marriage is hard or it feels unsatisfying or if it's full of hurt or disappointment or difficulty maybe especially when lockdown is piling on the pressure. Temptation can be real. And verse 25 begins to flesh that out. Verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your hearts. Do not let her capture you, her, you with her eyelashes. Notice where the battle begins. In the heart. That's exactly what Jesus taught about adultery and lust in Matthew 5. He said, don't even take a second look. Don't even entertain the possibility in your hearts. 
in the privacy of our hearts and minds is where adultery begins. Notice the contrast with verse 21. So what should I be filling my heart with? Well, God's word, bind it to your heart. Not fantasies about any person I'm not married to. Do not desire her beauty in your hearts. Secondly, do not let her uh, capture you with her eyelashes, which I think at first sight might sound a bit silly or superficial, as if kind of particularly well-applied mascara might be all it takes to to capture this young man. Although, to be honest, (laughs) I think sometimes men can have their heads turned all too easily just by someone's appearance. The advertising industry knows that sex sells. But actually, I wonder if something more is going on here. The two most powerful forces of communication for humans are words, and they're mentioned in verse 24, the smooth tongue, and verse 25, eyes, the gaze, the slightly too long eye contact, the deeper look that says, I'm interested in you. I'm available for something. I want you. Come and get me. That temptation is real. It can happen in the office with those we work closely with. It can happen with neighbors or friends, with old flames, with strangers on a business trip or online. And we need to fill our minds and hearts with God's word Because there will come a time where we notice beauty or we receive a look and have to choose whether to entertain that desire in our hearts, whether to indulge the longer look or whether, in wisdom, we walk away. And the answer is absolutely clear here. Do not go there. Do not play with fire. Why? Because adultery destroys. It it destroys families and communities, societies. And it destroys the person themselves. That's what the rest of chapter 6 says. It describes adultery as one of life's self-destruct buttons. Again, that may sound really melodramatic, like I'm just exaggerating things, but it's really not. The book of Proverbs wants us to imagine King Solomon sitting down and passing wisdom on to his son and to think back to Grandpa David, King David, who passed it on to Solomon. And what did those men have in common? Adultery. What did it do to them, their lives, their families, their kingdom? Destruction. David's adultery with Bathsheba was the trigger for unraveling his stable, happy family into a civil war of animosity, even fratricide. The the sword never left his house again. In fact, in the initial attempt to cover up his adultery, and sadly, often this is the case, that led David into even more deceit and serious sin. Solomon's story was even worse. He committed adultery with several women. He accumulated wife after wife, and he ended up two-timing God with idols and saw his entire kingdom split after him. Adultery destroys families, communities, the people involved. And to drive that home, verses 27 to 35, they just spell out the heavy price adultery brings. Look at verse 27. This is the point of it. 
For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. This is not at all saying that sleeping with a prostitute is a good idea. The the Bible's clear um, that God designed sex to be used in marriage with one man and one woman. 1 Corinthians 6 makes it clear Christians should never visit a prostitute, whether in person or online. But the point of the contrast is, at least with a prostitute, which is also wrong, you know what the price is. There's calculable damage. But the fee you pay with adultery, well, it's a precious life. And then the image, verse 27, this graphic illustration. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. One of the striking things about those questions in verse 27 and verse 28 is that the answer is obvious. You cannot get that close to fire and not get burned. And yet sometimes we kid ourselves that we can. Just to take a breather for a moment, I had a reminder of this this weekend when I was lighting a barbecue. I'm a real fan of barbecues, you may know that. Um, And here are my kind of tips. If if you're lighting a charcoal barbecue, um, first one is get a chimney starter. Um, This this one doesn't have anything to do with the passage. The next two do. Get a chimney starter. It kind of piles all the coals up uh, in a pile, and it's much quicker to light. Second tip, don't wear open-toed sandals. I discovered this actually last weekend. Um, I just poured the really hot coals into the barbecue and suddenly discovered a searing pain on my foot. Turned out a tiny little fleck of white hot charcoal had landed on my skin, and and yes, it was burning its way through. Can one walk on hot coals and get his feet not scorched? I can confirm, no. But tip three, and the point that's being said here, at no point should you ever consider taking the chimney of white hot coals and just pouring it into your lap. Or or giving a a white hot burning barbecue a a long lingering hug just to see how close I can get. You will be burned. And yet, when someone heads towards adultery, they convince themselves that they won't get burned, that it, it might remain hidden, or it's not that serious, or that there won't be any repercussions Or maybe even there's something right about it. Even if it's not good for everyone, maybe it's good for me. Maybe it will feel good and and reward me. But God says, you're setting your household on fire. It's self-destruction. The specific reason that the Father gives, verse 29, is punishment. And actually, that's not talking about punishment from God. That's not the point of all this fire imagery. He will hold us accountable in this area. We'll we'll think about that later. But actually here, verses 30 to 35, he's talking about the social repercussions, the community fallout that comes from sleeping with someone else's spouse. Um, Again, there's another contrast with, with with another sin. It's a contrast to stealing, verses 30, 31, See, when a thief gets caught, 
he'll have to pay back the money and a hefty fine on top. Um, that's a similarity that adultery can cost us financially. But actually, with stealing, the, the, the father says, people won't despise him. He can make things right with compensation. But verse 33, with adultery, he will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. That is to say, a, a financial settlement package can't magically repair the damage. Verse 34, not least with the wronged man. Jealousy makes a man furious. He will not spare when he takes revenge. He'll accept no compensation. So can we see, verse 32, why he who commits adultery destroys himself? The father says to his son, however tempting his or her beauty is, however smoldering, those eyes are, it is not worth it. I wonder if we believe that. Such a different worldview, isn't it, from what we hear around us. Such a higher view of sex and marriage and relationship and commitment. And yet I think the, the fallout, the pain of broken families across our nation might suggest there's actually some wisdom here a lamp to guide our feet from destructive ways. And let me say, I know on the ground it's complicated. I know that married life is not easy. I know temptation sometimes feels impossible to resist. I know that marriages can feel hard and, and lonely. But if you're struggling at the moment, please ask for help. Speak to a Christian that you can touch or, uh, sorry, trust or get in touch with any of the elders here. Or go back and listen to that sermon from Jesus on Mark 10. But whatever you do, do not play with fire. Adultery destroys. That's our first point. And the dad still isn't done. Chapter 7, he's going to give another talk. Another making of the same points. But this time, he's going to actually expose the son and us to the reality of temptation. I've called this, don't fall into the trap. Adultery is deadly. The way the chapter works is the dad is going to allow us to, to feel the pull of it, to hear the voice, the seductive voice of this woman, to feel the lure of the trap. But before we get there, he gives us one more safety briefing, verses 1 to 5. It's like uh, Katniss in the training room, if you like Hunger Games, before she goes in to battle, or if, if Gladiator's more your generation. It's like Russell Crowe explaining to his fellow slaves how to survive in what we're about to enter, the Colosseum. Of course, both those examples, it's not a game. It's life or death. And the father says, again... The way to survive is to keep God's wisdom continually close. Striking in verses 1 to 5. It's so, so much is repeating. So just as 6.21 said, bind these commands on your heart. So now 7 verse 3 says, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your hearts. But there is something new. A new dimension of affection for God's truth. Look at 7 verse 2. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. The apple of your eye, like, like the object of your desire. Look at the language of affection in verse 4. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. 
cool insight, your intimate friend. So it's not just we need to remind ourselves of God's wisdom. We need to cherish it, appreciate it, grow a friendship with it, become BFFs. I don't really know what that means. I think it's best friends forever, maybe. Um, That's cheesy. But the point is we need to connect God's word to our affections. We need to ask ourselves, why is this the best way to live? Why is this not just true, but good, wonderful, more attractive than alternatives? Because as we draw close to God's wisdom, as we devote ourselves to lady wisdom as a sister, we'll avoid the seduction of lady folly. And make no mistake, her seduction is genuinely tempting. That's where we're going from verse 6 onwards. I need to say the next five minutes should come with a PG warning. I'm going to be fairly candid in describing this because I think the Bible is. We're going to watch this young guy, verse 7. He's just one of the guys, one of the lads. He's described as simple. That doesn't mean he's intellectually stupid. It's not about his IQ. It means he's not been taking God's wisdom to his heart. He's at real risk of ending up a fool. We know he's not taking God's wisdom to heart because he's not staying close to wisdom, but straying close to the house of this adulterous woman. Striking how that works, isn't it? I think if you asked him at this point of the story, verse 7, verse 8, are you planning to lose your virginity tonight? Or are you planning to sleep with another man's wife? I'm sure the answer would be no. No, of course not. I'm, I'm just going for a walk. But he just happens to be walking down her streets. And did you notice what time it was? Verse 9 says it four times. It was nighttime. It just happens to be dark. Let's be honest for a moment. This is exactly how it happens today. Often adultery or a sexual relationship outside of marriage, it doesn't start by someone making a plan. On day one, they're not planning to abandon their spouse or sleep with someone. It begins by going to a place of temptation, something that may not even be directly sinful, but puts them in the way of temptation. It's actually the exact opposite of God's wisdom in 1 Corinthians 6, which is to flee from sexual immorality. But this guy's not taken that wisdom to heart. He's asking, like so many, how close can I go? It's the club or the pub or the student house party or the sleepover. It's the computer when the kids are in bed. It's the TV series or the film or the channel that we know has some unhelpful stuff in it, but most of it's okay. It's the old flames on Facebook. It's the the one-to-one meetups with a neighbor we find attractive. We just enjoy each other's company. It's the colleague at work who's paying you a bit too much attention and you don't do anything. I'll just wander along there. That in itself isn't wrong. I'll see how close I can get. It's foolish. It's playing with fire. And so soon enough, having put himself in the way of temptation, well, verse 10 onwards, um, she finds him. And verses 11 to 12, she's on the hunt. This temptation comes in full force. It's kind of multifaceted. Verse 10, there's visual temptation here. She's dressed provocatively, sexually suggestive. In verse 13, there's physical 
temptation. She pins him, seizes him, kisses him, with bold face speaks to him. And then there's the words, the smooth words, verse 14. To be honest, quite how verse 14 works as a chat-up line, not sure. The commentaries have a debate about it. Um, it could just be saying she's got a lot of tasty meat at home left over from sacrifices. Uh, come and enjoy a rich feast with me. It might be implying that she can maintain some religious respectability even while she offers illicit sex. But either way, by the time you get to verse 15, the seduction's unmistakably clear, isn't it? The flattery. Now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. You, you, you. You're the one I want. You're the one I need. There's no one like you, no one as attractive as you. I can't live without you. I want you. And the simple youth is flattered. A married woman is thinking he's someone special. How powerful that desire can be. The desire to be wanted, especially if things are difficult at home or lonely. And then her flattery turns to full-on seduction. She, she describes in verses 16 and 17 how she's, she's pre-prepared an erotic space for them to enjoy together. And no expense has been spared. These aren't cheap furnishings. They're, they're the absolute height of luxury. So she's a rich, powerful woman taking an interest in this young man. And by the end, she's explicit. Verse 18, the subtle hinting becomes outright sexting. Verse 18, come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. You can feel the temptation. And before he can even reply, before he can think, hang on, hang on, there might be consequences, well, she immediately reassures him, verse 19, my husband's not at home, he's gone on a long journey, he won't be back for ages, took a bag of money, it won't be a month, there's no chance we can be caught. And so, as she keeps going on and on, verse 21, verse 22, his resolve cracks. All at once, he follows her. At which point, the camera zooms out and we see the reality of what's going on. This is a deadly trap. Pain of which he's none the wiser. Verse 22, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces his liver, as a bird rushes into the snare. He does not know it will cost him his life. He follows along. He's excited. He thinks he's in for a good night. He doesn't realize he's just destroyed himself. And so the father turns to draw a lesson for us all. Now, sons, listen to me. Don't stray into her paths. There's that straight command again. And here's the reason, verse 26. For many a victim she's laid low, and all her slain are like a mighty throng. Striking that, isn't it? So much for this guy being the special one. The one individual she really wanted, the true love. Well, no, he's just the latest conquest on the bedpost. One of many. And so much for her house being a beautiful, scented boudoir. Verse 27, her house is the way to shale, going down to the chambers of death. So the front door may be scented with spices and perfume, but that's to hide the stench coming from the back door. The father describes her bedroom as, a, as like a, a trapdoor to judgment, death, the chambers of shale. I mean, it is 
deeply sobering language. And we need to know that the New Testament confirms the seriousness of this. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's deadly. Not just social consequences. Eternal ones. It's why if we're considering it or dabbling with it, it's time to stop, to turn around, to run away, to speak to someone, to speak to a spouse, to to get help. Actually, just before I close... I want to acknowledge that actually, when it comes to sexual sin and temptation, none of us, not one of us, come as pure, as completely righteous and undefiled. None of us has always run the opposite direction when temptation has come, like the Lord Jesus. None of us has consistently said no. And so I want to close, actually, with a reminder that with Jesus, there is full forgiveness. Hope for repentant sexual sinners, for sexually broken people like us, even for adulterers. I know that for sure, because in John 4, Jesus met a Samaritan woman. He met her at lunchtime. She was there in the heat of the day because of the social shame of her relationship history. It was too much to bear in the community. She'd had five husbands. She was now with another man. And we don't actually know whether she was the victim or the perpetrator of sexual exploitation. All we know is her life was a mess, her reputation was destroyed. No doubt she was full of regret and pain, like so many of us are. But Jesus didn't blank her, or scold her, or shun her. He offered her living water. That is, he offered her full forgiveness, A fresh start with God the Holy Spirit making her clean from the inside out, helping her to change. And so that verse I read from 1 Corinthians, that sobering warning of judgment carries on like this. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you, Christians, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified, that is declared right, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God, by his Spirit, cleans us up, declares us righteous in Christ, gives us strength to take his wisdom to heart and keep fleeing temptation from now on. So why don't I close this in prayer? Our Father in heaven, these passages are sobering. The imagery is shocking. But we pray that you would help us not to turn from your word, but to turn to you, to bind your word on our hearts. And we thank and praise you that with the Lord Jesus, there is full forgiveness full cleansing and real power in our hearts to choose your ways of life. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.